0: There was this kid growing up in a town outside of Kansas City in the early 1990s who, on a Thanksgiving afternoon one year, found himself sitting on a couch while the feast was digesting and the television was on. Who had control of the remote control is not really important to this story, but a program was on discussing an upcoming anniversary of one of the most tumultuous days in the history of the United States of America the day a man in his prime was gunned down in broad daylight, when one presidential administration ended abruptly and another began awkwardly, yet it took several minutes for the new leader to know for sure he was, in fact, the new leader. This television program, on the 30th anniversary of this monumental incident, brought forward various opinions of what happened. Three shots. How about six? One gunman. How about two or three? And while the narrator is winding through the discussion, this kid sitting on the couch wondering if there was any leftover cranberry gel is completely unaware that his life is taking a huge turn. That kid was me, nine years old, being introduced to a controversial international event that changed lives and began a worldwide debate that lingers to this day. Now that's the last time I really want to talk about myself. That is not the point of this project. My story is actually a bit strange and probably a little embarrassing. This is a story of the people who gave two minutes of their time, or even two hours of their time, to let me talk to them about this subject. Whether it was a doctor who saw the unthinkable in a hospital trauma room, the son of the governor of Texas who did not know if his father was going to make it, the FBI agent who was unfairly blamed, the Secret Service officer who jumped onto the back of a limousine, but it was too late. This is their story, and I've wanted to tell it for years. And thanks to the explosion of podcasting, I can do this at my own pace, in different angles, and most importantly, without any manager looking over my shoulder. I'm Eric Bushman. This is the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, in Dallas, Texas. President Kennedy came to Texas for two reasons. Many, if not most, think it was a campaign trip. A year out from the 1964 election, a key state with an enormous amount of electoral delegates, so he obviously would come. But it was also more than that. There was infighting within the Democratic Party in Texas, mostly between Vice President Lyndon Johnson and Senator Ralph Yarborough, Governor John Connolly also in the mix. So why don't we put everyone together and also bring along Congressman Jim Wright of Fort Worth and others in the Texas delegation and basically make a tour of the state showing everyone we are united going into 1964. And if we can pick up a vote or two here and there, then fantastic. Thursday, November 21st, 1963, President Kennedy and First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy fly from Andrews Air Force Base outside Washington to San Antonio. It was at Brooks Air Force Base where President Kennedy touched on the space race. Over two years since he set the goal to land a man on the moon before the decade was out.
1: conquest of space must and will go ahead. That much we know. That much we can say with confidence and conviction. Frank O'Connor, the Irish writer, tells in one of his books how as a boy he and his friends would make their way across the countryside. And when they came to an orchard wall that seemed too high and too doubtful to try and too difficult to permit their voyage to continue, they took off their hats and tossed them over the wall. And then they had no choice but to follow them. This nation has tossed its cap over the wall of space, and we have no choice but to follow it. Whatever the difficulties, they will be overcome. Whatever the hazards, they must be guarded against. With the vital help of this aerospace medical center, with the help of all those who labor in the space endeavor, with the help and support of all Americans, we will climb this wall with safety and with speed. And we shall then explore the wonders on the other side.
0: Less than six years from that speech, Neil Armstrong would achieve the goal, Kennedy set out in 1961, of landing man on the moon. Less than 24 hours from that speech, President Kennedy would be dead. From there, a short trip to Houston, where the President made remarks at a dinner, and then he and the First Lady dropped in on a meeting of the League of United Latin American Citizens. Then back to Air Force One and a late night flight to Fort Worth where President Kennedy spent his final night alive at the Hotel Texas, today the Hilton in downtown Fort Worth. Friday, November 22nd began raining. Crowds had gathered early outside to see the president. He spoke outside and then made what became his final speech to an audience in the ballroom of the Hotel Texas. I know uh, now
1: why everyone in Texas, Fort Worth is so thin, having uh, gotten up and down about uh, nine times... This is what you do every morning. Mr. Buck, Mr. Vice President, Governor Conley, Senator Yarbrough, Jim Wright, members of the Congressional Delegation, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Attorney General, ladies and gentlemen. Two years ago, I said that I uh, introduced myself in Paris by saying that I was the man who had accompanied uh, Mrs. Kennedy to Paris. I'm getting that somewhat that same sensation uh, as I travel around uh, Texas. Nobody wonders what Lyndon and I wear.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The president spoke about Fort Worth's lead in the field of aviation and how the city plays an important role in the nation's defense.
1: During the days of the Indian War, this city was a fort. During the days of World War I, even before the United States got into the war, Royal Canadian Air Force pilots were training here. During the days of World War II, the great Liberator bombers on which my brother flew with his co pilot from this city were produced here. First non stop flight around the world took off and returned here in a plane building factories here. The first truly intercontinental bomber, the B 36, was produced here. The B 58 which is the finest weapon system in the world today, which it demonstrated most recently in flying from Tokyo to London with an average speed of nearly a thousand miles per hour, is a Fort Worth product. The Iroquois helicopter from Fort Worth is a mainstay in our fight against the guerrillas in South Vietnam. The transportation of crews between our missile sites is done in planes produced here in Fort Worth. So wherever the confrontation may occur and in the last three years, it's occurred at least three occasions in Laos, in Berlin, and in Cuba, and it will again, wherever it occurs, the products of Fort Worth and the men of Fort Worth provide us with a sense of security.
0: The president's final recorded words concluded with this message.
1: This is a very dangerous and uncertain world. As I said earlier, on three occasions in the last three years, the United States has had a direct confrontation. No one can say uh, when it will come again. No one expects uh, that uh, our life will be easy, certainly not in this decade and perhaps not in this century. But we should realize what a burden and responsibility the people of the United States have borne for so many years. Here, a country which lived in isolation, divided and protected by the Atlantic and the Pacific, uninterested in the struggles of the world around it. Here in the short space of 18 years after the Second World War, we put ourselves by our own will and by necessity into defensive alliances with countries all around the globe. Without the United States, South Vietnam would would collapse overnight. Without the United States, the CETO Alliance would collapse overnight. Without the United States, the CETO Alliance would collapse overnight. Without the United States, there would be no NATO, and gradually Europe would drift into neutralism and indifference. Without the effort of the United States and the Alliance for Progress, the communist advance onto the mainland of South America would long ago have taken place. So this country, which desires only to be free, which desires to be secure, which desires to live at peace for 18 years under three different administrations, has borne more than its share of the burden, has stood watch for more than its number of years. I don't think that uh, we are fatigued or tired. We would like to live uh, as we once lived, but history will not permit it. The communist balance of power is still uh, strong. The balance of power is still on the side of freedom. We are still the keystone and the arch of freedom, and I think we will continue to do as we have done in our past our duty, and uh, the people of Texas will be in the lead. So I'm glad to come. I'm glad to come to this uh, state, which has played uh, such a significant role in so many efforts in this century. And to say that here in Fort Worth, you people will be playing a major role in the maintenance of the security of the United States for the next 10 years. I'm confident as I look uh, to the future that our chances for security, our chances for peace are better than they've been in the past. And the reason is because we're stronger. And with that strength is a determination to not only maintain the peace, but also the vital interests of the United States. To that great cause, Texas and the United States are committed.
0: By this time, the rain was coming to an end outside, the sun was coming out, this weather became critical to a decision that was about to be made a few miles away in Dallas. The president emerged from the hotel with his wife, who was wearing that famous pink suit and the matching pillbox hat. They rode in a convertible to Carswell Air Force Base, today Naval Air Station, Fort Worth Joint Reserve Base, where Air Force One was waiting, then a short flight to Dallas Love Field. Now, all while President Kennedy was getting ready, shaking hands in the rain and giving what became his final speech in Fort Worth, some important activity was going on simultaneously in Irving, a northwest Dallas County suburb. Buell Wesley Frazier is eating breakfast and he needs to hurry along because he's taking a co-worker who stayed the night down the road in Irving to where they both work, the Texas School Book Depository in downtown Dallas. He had come down to the where I was staying
2: with my sister and her husband and the three children. He'd come down, uh, he'd walk down the uh, sidewalk and um, my sister saw him carrying a package and he put it on the back seat. Well, then he comes around and looks in the kitchen window there where the sink was. And my mother who was there visiting at the time and my stepfather, uh, my mother looked up and she says, she said, who's that man looking in the window?
0: And I, looked, I said, oh, that's Lee. The man who knocked on the window and is about to hop into Frazier's car is Lee Harvey Oswald. Frazier finished his breakfast and joined Oswald at the car. We was getting in the car,
2: and I was sitting down, and I glanced over my shoulder because I was talking to him. And I noticed there was a package on the back seat. And I didn't look at the package real hard. I just glanced at it. And I said, what's in the package? He says, remember I told you it was curtain rods. I was going to bring some curtain rods to put up the curtains in my apartment. I said, oh, okay. And I didn't really
0: think anything else about it. Both men make it to the book depository. Frazier sees Oswald walking away, taking the package Oswald claimed was curtain rods into the building. Now let's head over to Dallas Love Field, where Air Force One is approaching. Sitting on the tarmac are a number of limousines. Waiting for Air Force One are a number of reporters. One of those reporters is a young man who would later go on in his career moderating numerous presidential debates through the years while working for PBS. Dallas Times Herald reporter Jim Lehrer. The cars that were going to be in the motorcade were parked
3: down a ramp. And the rewrite man, I had an open telephone line back to downtown Dallas, and the rewrite man asked me, if uh, they were going to have the bubble top up on the car. And because it had been raining that morning in Dallas, and I, I told the guy, well I couldn't see the ramp. He said, well you go down there and take a look, would you please, because I'm going to be riding under deadline and I'd like to know, you know, just as a matter of fact, that whether the bubble top is going to be up. So anyway, I go down there, and I see the car. There are about six or seven cars, and the, including the uh, presidential limousine, and the bubble top is up. The Secret Service agent was standing there. I knew, because I was a federal reporter, and I asked, I saw the bubble top, and I said, well, Rewrite wants to know if uh, you're going to leave the bubble top up, and he said, so anyhow, make a long story short, he decides after checking the sky and checking downtown that it's
0: clear, the rain is cleared, so he orders the bubble top taken off. The rules about the bubble being off or on came from President Kennedy himself. Secret Service agent Gerald Blaine, who would go on to write the book, The Kennedy Detail, explains.
4: The rule from the day he saw that automobile was that the top will be off unless it's raining or the wind is blowing and Mrs. Kennedy
0: is with him. On top of that, President Kennedy had just given an order a few days before in Florida about agents being on the back of the open car when there weren't heavy crowds around.
4: Essentially, he said, look. My political style is to be with the people and be seen. I have to win Florida and I have to win Texas in order to get reelected. So I'm asking the agents not to stand on the back of the car.
0: So the bubble top came off, and during the motorcade, agents would not be hanging on the back of the car. It's now a little after 1130. Broadcasters from various Dallas-Fort Worth radio stations teamed up to do a giant simulcast of the day's events. A reporter from KLIF was broadcasting from Love Field. His report was broadcast by many radio stations. And here is the presidential jet, U.S. Air Force number 1, printed on the side,
5: and it is right in front of us at this moment. We're going to have an excellent view of the President and the First Lady, as they step off this jet. The reception line is formed, and there is Mrs. Kennedy, the First Lady stepping from the plane, wearing a bright pink suit with a dark fur collar and a matching pink hat, and the President wearing a dark suit steps off directly behind. Then comes Governor and Mrs. John Connolly and Senator Ralph Yarborough. He rode the presidential plane rather than the vice presidential plane. The usual handshakes, the official greetings. Mrs. Kennedy has been presented her bouquet of brilliant red roses, and they make a lovely contrast to the bright pink suit she is wearing. For the ladies in the audience, once again, it's a bright pink suit. She is wearing black shoes, a black fur color, and a pink pillbox hat. And that is just about the extent of our ability to explain what any lady is wearing, but she does make a very striking picture as she touches the huge bouquet of bright red roses. The handshake line is long, but already the official party has performed its greeting. The president has stopped momentarily to chat with someone whom we can't recognize from this distance because so many people are crowded around that particular area. And here comes the president now, In fact, he's not in his limousine. He's departed the limousine, and he is walking. He is reaching across the fence, shaking hands, shaking hands with many of the people who have come here to see him. He is closely accompanied by Dallas police officers and, of course, the Secret Service. But Mr. Kennedy stepped out of the automobile. He is now shaking hands. Mrs. Kennedy is right behind him, and they are walking along the line of the fence, shaking hands with some of the hundreds of people who have come here to view their arrival. Now this is a distinct departure
0: from the plan that had been set forth many, many days ago. Thousands of people from the general public tried to get up to the fence to shake the president and Mrs. Kennedy's hands. Waiting at Dallas Love Field was Bill Newman, along with his family, a wife and two sons.
6: I had my youngest son on my shoulder, Clayton. He was two at the time, and we got right up to the, Fence got a real good look uh, at the president and Mrs. Kennedy, but uh, Gail and Bill were five or six people deep back, and they didn't get a good view of them. So we jumped in our car.
5: The gunmetal gray limousine, blue and gray, pulling away now from the fenced area. The president and Mrs. Kennedy seated on the back seat. Governor and Mrs. Connolly on the second seats or jump seats, and then the official driver and Secret Service man. Are in the front seat and uh, immediately behind them another car swarming with the Secret Service. Car making its way through the rain puddles left by this early morning rain and all of the other vehicles in the official motorcade are now falling into line and the trip
0: to downtown Dallas in the trademark is underway." At this point broadcasts return to normal. Dallas-Fort Worth TV stations resumed normal programming of soap operas and the like. Radio stations went back to playing music because this would be a broadcasting lull of the visit while the presidential motorcade traveled through the city with the eventual stop at the Dallas Trademark. The Dallas Trademark is where we find local sports broadcaster Wes Wise, who would later become the mayor of Dallas a few years later. He had taken exclusive photographs of an assault on U.N. Ambassador Adlai Stevenson in Dallas about a month before. He was at the trademark to look for anyone suspicious at the request of law enforcement.
7: As a result of that, uh, I went over the uh, people in the background of uh, the demonstration uh, before uh, JFK came to to try to identify uh, at the trademark building when the president arrived anybody that might be acting wrong, uh, either demonstrably or or uh, causing problems or causing trouble in the background or anything like that. And I went over the, the film of the Adlai-Stevenson attack with members of the Secret Service and the FBI so that uh, when my wife and I were at the trademark building waiting for the president uh, the, the, for the speech uh, that if I wanted to identify anybody to them that acted uh, dishonorably in any way, I would be able to, to tell them.
0: The motorcade left Dallas Love Field and turned left onto Mockingbird Lane. It made a right-hand turn onto Lemon Avenue. It went all the way down to Turtle Creek Boulevard and made a right. Turtle Creek becomes Cedar Springs, and the motorcade entered Uptown Dallas. Then, the motorcade made a left-hand turn onto Harwood, where it traveled into the business section of downtown. Harwood makes a more southerly curve, if you will, a few blocks before Main Street. The motorcade then turned right onto Main in downtown by the old police headquarters in City Hall, then all the way down to Dealey Plaza. The motorcade turns right onto Houston Street and then an immediate left-hand turn onto Elm in front of the Texas School Book Depository. Buell Frazier, who carpooled with Lee Harvey Oswald to work that morning, is standing just outside the front door.
2: The where I was standing on the top of the steps, there in front of the Texas School Book building. I was in the shadows and you couldn't see me. There's been pictures taken of people standing there, but you can't see me, but I'm back in the shadows. And I will tell you today, Mr. Bushman, that was the greatest seat in the house. There was no one standing in front of me. I had to tiptoe around or or, or miss just a second or two. I was standing and I could look over everybody and I could see it, it was a claim view there.
0: It was the most beautiful view in, in a house. Remember Bill Newman, whose family didn't get a close enough look at Dallas Love Field? He's now at twelve thirty, a few hundred feet down the street from the depository, standing on the sidewalk.
6: You could hear the parade coming down Main Street and the people cheering and recall seeing the president's car turn right onto Houston Street and go That short block and turn left onto Elm. And he, we were standing on the curb's edge, and the president's car was out in the second lane, in the middle lane, so he's one lane uh, out from us. And as the car came towards us, some 50 or 100 feet from us, the first two shots rang out. And I actually thought someone had thrown firecrackers beside the president's car. And I thought, you know, that's a pretty poor joke for somebody.
0: Frazier hears the noises too just a
2: very short time I heard a sound at first I thought it was a motorcycle backfire but then it wasn't very long after that there was two more closer together and then I realized at that time that that was not backfire there was somebody was firing a weapon and people was running it was chaos people
0: hollering and screaming and everything and so I just stood still. Bill Newman and his family are the closest people to the motorcade who are not a part of the motorcade itself. As the car got closer to us, I
6: could see the blood on Governor Connolly and his protruding eyes and bewildered look on the president's face and just as the car got straight out in front of us, uh, the third shot rang out and the side of President Kennedy's head blew off and you could see the blood and and the brain matter, you know, uh, spewing in the air, and he went over into Miss Kennedy's lap, fell back into the seat, and, and uh, I turned to Gail and I said, that's it, hit the ground, and we threw our two children down on the ground.
0: The noises catch the attention of Secret Service agent Clint Hill riding on the side bumper of the follow-up Secret Service car, which is just inches behind the presidential limousine.
4: Heard the noise, I started to look to my right when I did. My eyes went across the back of the car, and I saw the president grabbing his throat, lurch to his left, and I knew something was wrong. So I jumped in the car and ran to the presidential vehicle, hoping I could get there to cover over above the president and Mrs. Kennedy to protect them from any additional injury or, or shots. But I didn't, apparently there was a second shot, which I didn't hear. The third shot happened just before I got to the car. It hit the president in the head, in the right upper rear portion of his head. Opened up his head, uh, blood and brain matter spewed out the whole area, including myself. About that time, Mrs. Kennedy came out of the back of the car. I helped her get into the rear seat. When I did that, the president's body fell to its left under her lap. His face up, his eyes were fixed, big hole in the right upper portion of the head, about the size of my palm, and there was blood and brain material all over the back of the car, including Mrs. Kennedy, and I realized then that this must be a fatal wound. So I turned to the follow-up car and gave a thumbs down.
0: Now, standing a few feet away is James Tagg. He was walking into the plaza from the triple underpass on the west side of the plaza, and he also heard the shots. But it isn't just what he heard that is important here.
8: I temporarily forget that something stings me during the crack, crack of the two rifle shots. I'm standing there, and a man in a suit comes running up, he says, what happened? And I, I says, I don't know. Well, we noticed a motorcycle was stopped over off Elm on the grassy, what's now known as the grassy knoll, and uh, we walk over, and uh, just in time to hear a man sobbing, his head exploded, his head exploded. The policeman says, whose head? He says, the president's. And uh, the deputy sheriff, I learned, was Buddy Walters. And I'll never forget, he turned to the grass there beside the sidewalk, He kicked the grass and said, damn, damn, damn. Then he looked up at me and said, you got blood on your face. And I reached up and sure enough, there was a little bit of blood where the debris from the shot hitting concrete in front of me uh, had hit me in the face.
0: The driver of the presidential car eventually took off after braking during the shooting. Agent Hill is on the back of the limo as a car raced under the triple underpass and out of sight to those in Dealey Plaza. The limo enters a northbound Stimmons Freeway today, I 35E, and at a pace of nearly 80 miles an hour, rushes north to Parkland Hospital. Police Chief Jesse Curry radios orders to his officers and a heads up to Parkland. Past, uh, Clint Hill is now basically acting as a human shield. He's looming over the tops of Governor Connolly, who was wounded, Connolly's wife Nellie, and in the back seat, President Kennedy, who is nearing death, and the First Lady, who is cradling JFK's body.
4: We we're going about 80 miles an
0: hour, and no,
4: I didn't have any fear about that at all. I had myself fairly well wedged in there. I was up as high as I could be, so people couldn't even see into the back seat see what, what had happened. Uh, there was no fear, I was, first of all, screaming at the lead car to get us to a hospital. Then I noticed that the governor lifted up a little bit, and I noticed for the first time that he was covered in blood. He had been shot, I didn't realize until that point. That was halfway to the hospital. Then by that time, we were turning into the hospital, I guess. It only took us, I would, less than five minutes from the time that the shot impacted until we were at the stop at Parkland
0: Hospital. As a chaos in Susan Dealey Plaza, a reporter for WBAP radio, Bob Welch, hears the chatter on the police radios and makes a judgment call to radio in a report. And he was having issues with the folks back at the office. You had one of your own WBAP reporters in the car, following
9: the motorcade, telling you as one of your people, that there's been a shooting in the motorcade, and I don't know if he's dead or not, but we'll find out and I'll keep you. And um, that didn't get on the air. They didn't air my report for like four or five minutes after the fact. It's not known for sure, but it is believed that President Kennedy has been shot. President Kennedy was in a motorcade en route to the trademark where he was to address a luncheon gathering shortly afternoon today. As I say, it has not been fully confirmed, but police radios are carrying that the president has been hit. The president's party, his wife, the governor, senators, and all other political officials were en route as fast as they could get there to Parkland Hospital under heavy police siren guard going extremely fast past the trademark, past the large throngs of people awaiting to catch a glimpse of the president. It's thought that the incident occurred the underpass section entering the Stemmons Expressway just on the outskirts of downtown Dallas. This unit is presently en route to Parkland Hospital. Confirmation will come shortly. From Dallas, Bob Welch, WBAP Radio News.
0: From Stemmons Freeway, the motorcade exited onto what was then Industrial Boulevard, today Market Center Boulevard, and rushed toward Harry Hines. Then a left turn quickly over that little hill there north to Parkland. Ambulance driver Aubrey Reich was inside. All of a sudden, these guys come running in with guns and drone and
7: machine guns and, and uh, shotguns and everything. Thought we want some Gurneys. and, uh, You know, doing a lot of cussing. You know, there's some GD gur- Gurneys out here right now. Yeah.
0: Doctor Robert McClellan was on duty inside the trauma room where President Kennedy was wheeled in. I was
3: horrified when I first saw President Kennedy's face as I entered Tromble Room 1, but I was also gratified that Dr. Perry and Dr. Baxter, who were also helping it operate on his neck, had just arrived right before me and were putting a surgical drape around this wound that he had in his neck, uh, preparatory to exploring that wound. And they asked me to, um, Dr. Perry handed me a retractor and said would you go stand at the head of the gurney and retract this wound that we were making for the exploration so we can see better. And I said yeah, and that put me in a position to have a better view of the president's head wound than anybody. And it was a huge wound in the back of his head here. Uh, and while I stood there and watched it, I could see that the back half of his cerebral hemisphere was gone. And while I stood there, the right uh, cerebellum sort of fell through the back part of this huge hole down here onto the gurney. So that, that's in my mind as clearly now
0: as your face is in front of me now. Now back at the trademark, Wes Wise was among the thousands waiting for the motorcade to arrive. Some had been outside where the motorcade went by at a high rate of speed, speeding toward Parkland Hospital having no idea what in the hell was going on. Wise was inside waiting for the event to get underway.
7: My wife and I were sitting at the table uh, waiting for the dinner and the arrival of the president. I saw a Secret Service man going by very swiftly and I stopped him and said, uh, what's, what, what's the matter? What's going on? And he looked at me in the eye, I'll never forget it, and he says, with tears in his eyes, he said, the worst has happened.
0: Now, all the way on the other side of downtown Dallas, this in the Oak Cliff section of Dallas, police officer J.D. Tippett stopped a man walking along 10th Street near Patton. Now, while we don't know and are never going to know exactly what the conversation was, we can guess. Maybe Officer Tippett saw someone either acting suspiciously or fitting the description that was broadcast back from Dealey Plaza of a gunman on an upper floor of the depository building. Regardless, Tippett got out of his patrol car and was gunned down. A bystander rushed over to the scene and called it in using Tippett's own patrol car radio.
3: Hello, police operator. Go ahead, the citizen using his... Radio. Hello, we've a shooting out here. Where is it at? The citizen using police radio... Yes,
9: Location between Marshalis and Buckley. It's a police officer. Somebody shot him. What's it? Street. 78. It's in a police car. Number 10. 10. 78.
5: 78.
0: Hello. Did you get that? Police officer 510 East Jefferson. Dallas police comb the area for a suspect. Now, An employee of a store along Jefferson Boulevard reports seeing a man acting suspiciously ducking into the Texas theater that is still there today. Police go in. The employee points this man out and police arrest Lee Harvey Oswald. President John F. Kennedy and Governor Connolly are shot in the motorcade. President Kennedy is officially pronounced dead around 1 p.m. Connolly is operated on and survives. Police officer J.D. Tippett is shot sometime after one o'clock and arrives at Methodist Hospital dead on arrival. Lee Harvey Oswald is charged first with the murder of Tippett that afternoon, and then around midnight, November 22nd into November 23rd, is charged with the assassination of Kennedy. Everything I have just laid out is what happened on November 22nd, and all that follows is quite simply unbelievable. I'm Eric Bushman. This is the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas, Texas.